Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Magda Tater to talk about the history of the blood libel accusation and its continued relevance. Listen in for a wide-ranging conversation about the history of the blood libel, its origin in medieval Europe, and how it has transformed over the centuries, and what it tells us about misinformation and how it spreads. Magda Tater is Professor of History and the Schwidler Chair of Judaic Studies at Fordham University. She is the author of numerous books, most recently Blood Libel, on the trail of an anti-Semitic myth, which we'll talk about today. The Blood Libel is one of the long-standing false accusations against the Jews. It is the myth in different variations and incarnations that Jews murdered Christian children and used their blood for various rituals. And it's obviously patently false, but somehow people still believe it. And it has persisted across nearly a thousand years, from medieval England to Nazi anti-Semitism and beyond. We can see the ways in which the imagery of the blood libel and its false narrative persists, even in new reconfigured forms, like the conspiracy theories of QAnon. As Magda argues, these accusations across the centuries and different places and at different times became a vehicle for different anxieties about Jews and about people's lives at large. And so we can see the blood libel in a certain way as a mirror of the fears that people had, not just about Jews, but about all sorts of issues. Nevertheless, the blood libel is not just a relic of medieval superstition or something like that. It's something which has changed with the times and which in many ways has piggybacked off of new technologies and new developments. And this is one of Magda's key arguments, which is that it's the printing press that enabled the proliferation and persistence of these false myths and disinformation, which, when published, allowed them both to spread more widely and also gave these false accusations an air of quote-unquote respectability because they existed in print in the first place. And so this allows us to think deeply about the role of media technologies, both in medieval and early modern Europe, and also more recently with things like the radio, the newspaper, even the internet, as avenues not for the spread of information, but rather of misinformation. Thank you so much for listening in to this conversation. I hope that you'll check out Magda's book, Blood Libel, and also the accompanying website, thebloodlibeltrail.org where you can learn more about the book and also check out some really fascinating maps and other media about the anti-Semitic myth of the blood libel. Thanks again for listening. Hi, Magda. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jason. Thank you for having me. This is such an interesting topic. It's, I think, unfortunately very relevant to talk about blood libel accusations. Yes, unfortunately. I'm a scholar of pre-modern history, and we always want to be relevant. But as I always say, be careful what you wish for. Suddenly, my book uh, became 
quite relevant. Although when I started it, it was an academic exercise. Yeah. I mean, I think that we are going to get to the question of the ways in which the historical blood libel accusation is still very relevant today. But before we do that, I think it might be useful for us to think kind of really broadly what actually is the blood libel accusation. And in particular, putting it into the context of thinking about how this is similar or different to other kinds of accusations that we see throughout history, thinking about, for instance, the accusation of deicide, the accusation that Jews you know, had murdered Jesus, and then also things like the accusation of the desecration of the host, the totally kind of bizarre accusation that Jews would steal the, the wafers from the church. You're right. Blood libel is one of a series of accusations against Jews that emerged in the Middle Ages and it's one that has relevance today. Deicide was a theological belief and obviously an accusation, but it became embedded as a belief and maybe then projected onto Jews causing violence, especially during Easter. But it was, so to speak, a victimless crime every year. Whereas a number of other accusations emerged in the high Middle Ages, just as Christianity, Catholicism, were also solidifying certain and defining certain types of beliefs. And then there were also libels that emerged in moments of crisis, uh, such as epidemics, so uh, poisoning of wells, for instance. So blood libel is one of the three medieval accusations, the so-called ritual murder accusation, or although I, I prefer to call it murder libel, but it's an accusation that emerged in the 12th century that claimed that Jews killed Christian children to reenact the passion of Jesus. So that connects to the deicide as a projection onto contemporary Jews and reenactment. That emerged in England and then in the 13th century, it emerged in a new way on the European continent. And that's when it became blood libel, that Jews killed Christian children to obtain their blood. Although the very first accusation claimed of perhaps some other kind of form of cannibalism, of eating a heart or something like that. The reason why blood became so central is that this was the moment when the Catholic Church in the 13th century has affirmed the dogma of transubstantiation. That is the communion wafer that was consecrated by a priest during Mass turned into the actual body and blood of Christ. Therefore, blood becomes a central motif in Christian worship. So uh, this is a moment where we have this both the transformation of the murder libel into blood libel of killing for the purpose of obtaining blood, but also the emergence of another accusation that you mentioned, the host desecration accusation. That is that Jews obtain steel by uh, the consecrated wafer and then try to stab it to obtain the blood of Christ. And both are connected in the sense that the blood becomes a motif. And because uh, Jews cannot make their own consecrated wafer, 
Uh, they needed this blood of the innocent Christian to be added to matzah, effectively making it into both the body and the blood of Christ, right? But the accusation that Jews stole the consecrated wafer and then desecrated it and blood flowed, that accusation kind of waned and disappeared after the Reformation. The blood libel and the murder libel kind of continued the life of their own. The reason for it is that they are related to deaths of children and to some perhaps victims, perhaps accidentally killed, drowned children. So it becomes a a very intimate, actually, charge because it involves a death. Ah, Having a wafer stabbed doesn't sound as, unless you really believe what this wafer means. But accusing someone of a child that may be found dead, or sometimes there wasn't even a body, that may have been somebody's child, that becomes a very kind of an intimate uh, accusation and a very embodied accusation. Even that transformation from the murder libel, that is of reenactment of the Passion of Christ, which emerges at the moment when Christians are beginning to liturgically focus on the Passion of Christ. So you think about Jews and reenactment and, and all that stuff. But the transformation to the blood libel shows you that this is, begins to be a very malleable accusation, that it can change depending on needs. And the need became that connection between the new liturgy and the new theology of the blood and body of Christ in the 13th century. And that malleability really continues. And today, People don't realize some connections, but that becomes, as historical context and needs change, that accusation also changes its character. Part of what you're talking about here actually anticipates the next set of issues that I want us to get into, which is the way in which the blood libel accusation simultaneously persists and also changes over the course of the centuries. And I think you highlighted the way in which, on the one hand, the blood libel accusation, alongside all of the other accusations against Jews, are really a product of their time, right? They are tied intrinsically to whether we're thinking about, say, the Fourth Lateran Council in the 12th century or the emergence of, you know, certain beliefs like transubstantiation. And how they grow and how they wane is, is connected to the broader historical context. And yet some of these accusations have really fallen away. The accusation of deicide, for instance, it was in the 1960s, right, where the, the Catholic Church officially renounced this, this claim that the Jews had killed Jesus. You know, so that's, of course, very recent. But fundamentally, what we see is that in this context or the context of the Reformation and other things, some of these accusations, they grow in intensity or they wane or fall away. What I'm just trying to say is that, that we see these accusations within their historical context. And at the same time, they're also changing over the course of time in ways that make them continually relevant to people, which is part of the reason perhaps why they stick around. Right. And again, you can always imagine a child being killed. Imagining other things is much more difficult, right? So that's why the blood libel becomes so powerful because it changes. Just to to give you an example, Probably the most famous case is the one of Simon of Trent, a child who's uh, found dead, probably drowned in 
1475 in the now northern Italian town of Trento. That one really combined all these medieval narrative features. It included both the supposed crucifixion of that child, the narrative of reenactment of the Passion of Christ, but also the blood motif of taking the blood for whatever healing or ritual purposes. But some of those elements disappear in different times and places. So, for instance, it's not always a boy that would be embodiment of Jesus, for instance. Sometimes it's a girl. It's not always around Easter Passover, so it doesn't have that theological resonance. It sometimes is during the summer. It sometimes is at different times of day. And then, of course, that theological explanation no longer works. Because, like, why would you try to crucify the child in August? So you need other explanations. So what we see is we see that whenever a child is lost or dies, there is some sort of a political will that needs to happen in a given place to connect it to Jews, accuse them. The crime or the death of the child has to have some kind of utility, political utility in places. And therefore, that accusation becomes very malleable. So it might be against a prominent Jewish leader who is a toll collector. It might be against someone who might be an advisor to a local lord or king or so on and so forth. Or it might be, it happens today, the trope is used in uh, anti-Israeli propaganda, right? The imagery of Israelis killing children is really, when you look at it, it draws on the visual vocabulary that was developed over the centuries in Christian Europe against Jews and the blood levels. But again, it's a political use of that trope. One of the key debates, one of the key questions that people talk about with modern anti-Semitism is the extent to which modern anti-Semitism is a extension of earlier anti-Judaism or Judeophobia, or to which it is a sort of a modern phenomenon. And this, again, I think we can see this debate across any number of fields. Is anything a new phenomenon? But I think that the blood libel is a really interesting case because we can see the connections between medieval anti-Jewish myths and accusations and modern manifestations of anti-Semitism, where we can see the ties and also we can see the ways in which it changes. And there is a, a book that's coming out by Hilal Kieval in the 19th century, in early 20th century, it was most often young women because there was an anxiety about young women going out in the world and becoming free and playing a different role in society. So that's what you begin to see, this adjustment to political and social and cultural needs of the time. Why is it that the blood libel accusation becomes a vehicle for all these anxieties that you see, whether we're looking at medieval England, you know, or, or continental Europe, the 19th century, the 20th century, even up until the present, why is it that out of the various accusations against the Jews, that the blood libel accusation seemed to be the one with the most staying power and the most malleable out of them? I think one of the primary reasons is that this was the type of stories that was most disseminated in Christian literature about Jews. I won't say against Jews. And that was disseminated in literature that was not related to Jews. So you didn't have to be 
someone who hated Jews and he wanted to learn more about how horrible Jews were and were reading anti-Jewish literature, which was plenty in pre-modern Europe. But it became embedded in works like Chronicles of the World, descriptions, geographic descriptions of the world. And these were, the majority of the stories were about Jews killing Christian children, right? So there are some about Jews poisoning wells. This host desecration story is very spotty because it becomes denominational. It becomes Catholic or Protestant. So in the early modern period, at the height of churning out all these books with the development of the printing press, after 1519, it becomes denominational. So it is not replicated. But the printing press and these books, both directly anti-Jewish and Again, general knowledge books, authoritative knowledge books about history, about geography, about the description, they include those stories. And therefore, when you are just a casual reader, that's all you learn about. So when you begin to think about Jews, you're beginning to think about Jews in terms of those stories. And these are the stories of Jews killing Christians. These are the Jews uh, being shown as enemies of Christianity and Christians. So that's your frame that you are beginning to form consciously or or subconsciously. And I found this uh, wonderful example, which it was one of those like eureka moments when I was researching for the book, is this Polish writer who goes to Western Europe and begins to read Western literature and comes back and says, oh my goodness. I read all these things about Jews. I had no idea. I used to go and drink in their inns and eat with them. And I'm surprised I'm even alive now. So this was very much a knowledge and a habit of thinking that was shaped and transmitted through the printed books, printed media, which also means that it was transmitted and absorbed by educated people. So there is this myth, and we see it today too, whether it's about you know anti-Jewish historical accusations or riots, or even today when you think about, oh, this is a mob, thugs, uneducated, rabble. No, this all starts with people who are educated, who are readers, and it's then used and transmitted to those who are not readers. Yeah. Part of what you're hinting at here has to do with a really challenging aspect of thinking about the nature of knowledge and the nature of of authority. And I think that it really runs along the axis of, of rationality and irrationality. Here, I'm not just thinking about scholars, but just people in general. When we think about the blood libel, I think a lot of people assume that it is a kind of relic of medieval times, as it were. And the way in which this manifests itself in terms of the way in which kind of average people think about the world uh, and and the relationship between, say, modernity and what came beforehand, is that there is a a certain set of assumptions about the nature of modernization, that it's a a movement from, you know, so to speak, the Dark Ages to Enlightenment. And I think, obviously, the scholarship over, over the past generations have been working to kind of undermine those series of assumptions. And this is especially the case when we talk about blood libel, because blood libel accusations play into this set of assumptions when people think, oh, this is medieval, right? As people move into modernity, it is a process of the rationalization of the world, 
know, people no longer believe in these kind of myths. And then with blood libel, we see two things which take place. The first one being that there's a persistence of the blood libel. If people think this is just a medieval relic or a relic of the medieval world, no, it's, it's still around with us. And then simultaneously, when we look even at the medieval accusations, you see that, as, as you were saying, that it begins with the educated people as opposed to the illiterate peasants and so on and so forth. And this undermines a series of assumptions about the nature of how rational thinking works, about the nature of the transformation from the medieval Europe to modernity and so on and so forth. Yeah, so we have this narrative of progress, right? And that certainly has been amplified with the Enlightenment. But one of the things that I argue in the book and I've discovered is that we think about blood libel as a medieval accusation. But what I've been able to discover and document is that it emerges in the medieval period, but it truly becomes part of the European Christian imagination and European Christian vocabulary and habit of thinking about Jews in the early modern period after the printing press comes into use and helps to disseminate those stories. So in the Middle Ages, we have just a handful, really, very regionally known uh, stories. And most of them that we know come as sort of one-line mentions in some chronicles. There are very few examples where we have some substantive evidence that we actually can say that these accusations happened at the time and there was some reaction. This is not the case in the early modern period. And again, people think, oh, medieval accusation, it ended after the Reformation and all that. It is true. In Western Europe, the Reformation did help the waning of this accusation. And Ronnie Shah's book on the myth of ritual murder certainly shows and argues that. But when I started mapping these accusations, and uh, people can go on the accompanying website to the book and play with interactive maps, the bloodlibeltrail.org, you see that actually the majority of the accusations before 1800 were from the end of the 15th century on, right? So it's not a medieval accusation. This is very much an early modern accusation both in terms of the number of trials, and we no longer see it as just rumors, but we actually see as trials against Jews. So we actually have illegally filed charges against Jews. And that is connected to the dissemination of knowledge, to the printing press, uh, which becomes a source of validation of these now charges, not just rumors against Jews. What you're pointing out here is really fascinating. When we think about the history of print and the history of the printing press, which is that I think that part of what we see with the blood libel accusation is the way in which it undermines a series of, of assumptions, like you said, about the, the nature of historical progress. And thinking here about your book in particular, where you, I think, focus really critically on the printing press, people assume printing press equals more knowledge, equals the emergence from the Middle Ages. And what you're really pointing out here is the ways in which the printing press helps to reproduce myths as opposed to reproducing knowledge, looking at the blood level accusation in particular. Right. You might have a rumor 
that will then be written down and then will be added to a chronicle and it will become a fact. So one of the things that I wanted to disambiguate was when did things really happen? When were the Jews really accused versus when people said, oh, and the Jews, you know, killed that boy in that village over there. Did it happen? Did it not happen? It wasn't knowledge. But some of those oral tales entered historical documents and books and became facts that were added dates and historical facts. So that is a key point of that not everything that is written down happened, that there are some rumors and stories that are added and transmitted. And that's the key through what was considered authoritative sources by people with authority that enters the ecology of knowledge and then becomes used in real accusations. And now what we see with the white supremacists, for instance, they are turning to these historical sources or historical sites that are in a few places in Europe and are using them as a validation for their anti-Semitism now and a validation of you know, their belief that Jews were these evil people for centuries and have always been trying to murder and, and destroy Christians. So that's the key moment that the printing press plays a crucial role in transmitting what before may have been stories, tales, or rumors and turning them into facts. We're talking about dissemination in very authoritative sources. We are talking about Sebastian Münster and his magnificent cosmographia. Münster was a Protestant scholar, a Hebraist, and nonetheless he included a number of those stories in his 16th century massive work. Uh, we're talking about the lives of saints. We're talking about the ecclesiastical uh, history by Cesare Baronio from the 17th century. Although this one is a very interesting story because he includes documents defending Jews in his uh, publication, as well as his, some of his uh, continuators include the papal bull that, for instance, condemned accusations against Jews. But what happens is, these are massive books. Baronio's own work was 12 massive volumes. His continuators added a, another big volume per century, at least. Nobody was able to buy, you know, tens of volumes to learn this ecclesiastical history. So what we have, we have these abridged versions. And if we have a, you know, a story, let's say, about Fulda, 1235, or the uh, Valrea, 1247, in which Pope Innocent IV issues his bull condemning accusations against Jews, that bull is omitted and we only learn from the abridged versions that Jews either were accused or killed a, a girl in Valrea in 1247. So it becomes then a fact of a crime transmitted through those books rather than what is important about that particular case that the popes condemn such accusation. Thinking uh, particularly about what this means in its historical context, though, I think part of what you're pointing out here is how local stories are disseminated to a much broader audience through the printing press. And obviously, these are made up stories, kind of like fake news, so to speak. But 
that you're emphasizing here the way in which these local cults, as it were, you know, for instance, surrounding you know, Simon of Trent, become disseminated to a much wider audience. And what does this mean as we think about the transformation of medieval Europe into early modernity, broadly speaking, um, and also specifically when we're thinking about what this means for the transformation of the blood libel accusations in particular? I think one of the uh, important points about what happens in, with modern Europe as as Europe transforms itself from the pre-modern society of ruled by estates and privileges to nation states, the debate over whether Jews belong is influenced also by the new genre of national historiographies. And what newly emerging modern historians are doing is they are going either into historical sources or archives and they're digging in and publishing these pre-modern chronicles. And in these pre-modern chronicles, Jews appear as vicious murderers. So they begin to see them through history and through authoritative sources as dangerous outsiders. They're not like we see them now, contemporary historians going into the archives and see them embedded in society, interacting, being part and central to polities and to uh, societies, economies and cultures. And, and they don't see it. They first go to these chronicles. They first go to what historians of the past were saying about the past and look at these narratives of the, you know, the German nation or French or Polish or whatever, whatever. And the only place where Jews appear in those are as these dangerous outsiders. So that is, a, I think, a key point for the conceptualization of Jews as not part of our polity in the modern times, although it's a, you know obviously much more complex issue. But that's one of the ramifications of these blood label stories that were transmitted through these uh, early modern printed chronicles or medieval chronicles that they find and then republish in the, in the 19th century as part of the source base for these national stories. Part of what you're getting at here is the tension over knowledge. And I think that, that in many ways, that's really what's at the heart of the story about the blood libel accusation, which is, as you said, how is it that something that is patently false becomes true, quote unquote. And one of the things that, that I'm thinking about here is the ways in which we see this play out in Jewish history over and over again, uh, where people can talk about the, the tension over the blood libel accusation or anti-Judaism in general, you know, in terms of what we might talk about as like the triangle of power, as it were. Uh, and of course, you can configure this triangle in different ways, whether this has to do with the relationship between Jews and the state and the regular people, or in this case, the Jews and the population and the church, right? And I think that part of what's interesting here is that you see this tension over what is authoritative knowledge in terms of you know, folk knowledge on the one hand and authority, whether it's religious, political, and otherwise. And this comes out and it plays out in terms of the blood libel accusation. It plays out in terms of the witch craze in early modern times as well. And what does all of this tell us about the mediation of information? Complicating this as well is that, as you point out, it's not that the church is opposed to the blood libel and the peasants, for instance, are spreading these myths. It's, it's not that simple because, as you said, they are spread in large part because 
they are spread through authoritative sources as opposed to just say word of mouth. Right. So it's not that there were no known arguments against this accusation, right? It was not like Jews had to, or anybody else didn't know that Jews didn't eat blood uh, because of the biblical prohibitions and, and practices and things. That's not the issue about accepting facts. But as we've lived through the, an era where facts don't matter, where what matters is that you believe in what the sources of knowledge you consider as reliable and authoritative tell you, you believe that. And no matter how much you'll tell people that this is not true, they will still believe it. And I think this, the story that I'm telling in the book helps explain why this happens. How fake tales become facts that people accept and no matter what you tell them, no matter what logic you use, no matter what evidence you, you show them otherwise, they will not accept it and continue to believe in it. And one of the things, again, is what I was trying to, to show is how these tales end up in the ecosystem of knowledge. And it's not just the obscure tales, obscure sources. But again, as I mentioned, really important works of intellectual production of the time, disseminated by very important people. The, the Simon of Trent story that flooded the European continent and persisted happened because a sophisticated bishop used his authority to widely disseminated the story and used the new media of print. This was 1475, just a few decades after printing presses invented and helps disseminate that. He is also using and is aware that you need historical documents. So he is shaping the trial of Jews to provide the evidence in a way that can say, look, that's the stuff. So for all the you know, positivists who say, oh, this is in the archives and this is, you know, we can believe it. And which is, which is when modern historians began to look in the archives, they saw things in the archives and they say, this is in the archives. This is, you know, part of the of historical past. What is repeated? You have to look at the development of the habit of thinking. What is repeated? It's not that, oh, Jews were accused and the emperor objected. Oh, Jews were accused and the Pope objected. That's not what's transmitted. Jews were accused of killing a Christian child, and they were punished. They were expelled. They were burned on the stake. And these notes are short. They are sort of like Twitter. I mean, really, I, I thought about Twitter and the way we learn about things by looking at, you know, 280 now characters. That's very comparable to how these stories spread. And when you then flip page and page and page, and that's all you see, that's how you begin to think about Jews. Again, those who could read, because those who didn't have access to these books and who had contact with Jews did not think about Jews in those terms, because they knew Jews didn't eat meat of a certain kind. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. There were Christian uh, women who served in Jewish homes. There were, uh, you know, in places like Poland which becomes, you know, a site of huge number of accusations. Jews live very closely with Christians, and the Christians who don't read books 
sometimes are seen in court saying, no, they wouldn't do it. I've never seen them do that because they know what Jews do. It's the political use, it's the middling elites and local places who have access to that knowledge who begin to who begin to weaponize it for political reasons. I think that you raise a couple of really important points. First of all, this question of how is it that people believe things which are patently false and that anybody with firsthand knowledge would recognize that Jews don't eat blood, right? You know, it's the most taboo thing when you talk about, you know, kashrut, Jewish ritual purity. Blood of human flesh is not kosher, right? Exactly. Anybody with firsthand knowledge will know that, that, that this is patently false. It's totally absurd. And yet people still believe it. And then the second thing is about the way in which these things, which are entirely false, gain respectability, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And one of the fascinating things is a story of one footnote that I looked at. And it seemed like it was at least three or four uh, sources of knowledge. But it was only one source of knowledge. It was only one document that was published in different places, and it became an echo chamber, essentially, of knowledge. And we see, too, the echo chamber of somebody says something uh, on Twitter, the media will repeat it, and then somebody will say, oh, you know, Washington Post reported about that, and it becomes, you know, a more accepted knowledge than just somebody's Twitter feed. Yeah. This leads us um, to a, a really important issue, one that I was hoping that we could get to. And I think you hinted at it you know, earlier on in our, in our conversation. But the blood libel accusation and its persistence and its reproduction over time, I think, really trains our attention on this broader question about the nature of knowledge and really the ability of misinformation uh, to reproduce itself. One of the things that is important to remember and to think about is how do we know about things we know? But it's not just enough to say that, oh, Jews are accused of this or this happened or that happened. But how do we know what we know? How does what that knowledge become knowledge? How are the, these becoming facts? Uh, what are the, the ways of, of human understanding of history and cultures, right? And we can see it in debates about history, about American history, for instance, the whole Bruhaha over the 1619 project, because people are used of a certain way of thinking about their own histories. And then this pulls them out of a, a different zone. And they are unable to accept a different argument or different set of facts or different interpretation in that way. And it's very similar with the, the blood libel. As I said, the Pope mentions in 1247, Jews do not consume blood. There is a biblical prohibition against that. Authoritative source. It doesn't enter the ecology of popular knowledge. The stories that enter the printed sources are not the stories of Jews being acquitted or accusations dismissed. It is the stories of Jews convicted or Jews punished or expelled. And that begins to confirm, oh, they were punished and therefore they did it but also repeats that vocabulary. That is, we no longer accept, oh, the Pope wouldn't support Jews. How could he? You know, the other Pope has approved this cult, so it, it's not possible. So you reject the evidence countering what you believe in, even when that evidence is provided to you. 
part of what's going on here is the way in which we think about information technologies, as it were, as actually disinformation or misinformation technologies. I think this is an argument that some people have been making recently, you know, for a number of years now, and something that I feel very strongly about as well, about you know the computer revolution, the internet, right? You know, we're supposed to live in the information age. In reality, these uh, you know websites and, and and so on are actually a vehicle for misinformation. But you're saying this is also true about the printing press. That's right, and I think you can look at it from a broader media technology history. That any moment you have that new technology that allows for broader dissemination of information, knowledge, or whatever you want to call it, uh, you have both the positive, the access to new sources, but also the negative, right? So we have books that, you know, help disseminate laws and liturgy and other things when in the 15th century, the printing press has developed. You also have that either sinister or quite innocent. Again, you know, these guys who are writing these world histories, they are not out there to get the Jews. They are looking at these, oh, that's what happened in town. That's what the local chronicle says that happened in town. They just add it into the book, which then gets disseminated. But the result of it is that it can reproduce stereotypes or it can create stereotypes that are then reproduced and create those habits of thinking. With radio, when radio was introduced, we have both you know, educational programs, but we also have Father Coughlin spreading anti-Semitic you know, messages. You know, you're talking about the 1930s, right? The, the broadcast of the War of the Worlds, right? Also the same thing, right? You have, you know, you're broadcasting misinformation, people respond to it. Right, exactly. And with radio and with these books, it's a one-way dissemination, right? It's not like people can talk back or counter-argue, oh, this is wrong. This is broadcasted, this is uh, disseminated, people hear it or people read it. And then you have the internet, also new technology that we were all embracing as this democratizing thing, but now we're realizing that there are also these dark sides of, of that medium. So it is not a new story that technology also helps disseminate you know, hatred and prejudice. But what is, I think, different now is the speed and the scope. That is, you can send a tweet or put stuff on Facebook and it will become viral within minutes and reach millions of people right away. This was much more slower of a process, but the mechanism is very similar. To go back to something that you said before about how information becomes authoritative through the medium in which it is presented, because the fact that it's printed in a book makes it authoritative to people. I mean, I, I think about Wikipedia from an epistemological standpoint, for instance, uh, and, and there are two angles to this. The first one being that I think people recognize or they should recognize that Wikipedia is entirely unreliable. And yet this is where people still look up information on the one hand, right? The fact that something is on Wikipedia makes it authoritative, even though in many ways it's wrong. And at the same time, Wikipedia has a series of rules about what counts as an authoritative source when you're editing an article. And essentially, you know, the rule is you can't do any original research of any kind. But if it's printed somewhere else, then that makes it something that you can cite. And so what this means is that if you have something that's printed anywhere else, whether it's right or wrong, you can include it in Wikipedia. 
As a footnote, exactly. And that is exactly the same way these chronicles and these pre-modern sources function. That is, if you could find a source and footnote, you could say, oh, this happened. But it may not have happened. It may have been just a mention of somebody said that that happened, but it becomes truncated and it becomes a reliable fact. What is really interesting about this story in terms of anti-Semitism is that Nazis then turned to these pre-modern chronicles. And when they published this awful, in 1934, issue of their Sturmer about ritual murder, they are very clever in not just listing these by date, but then giving these sources from 16th century, from 17th century, from 15th century, and say, hey, we're not inventing it. This is all true. These are all facts, right? And then they introduce it into the uh, what is now white supremacist neo-Nazi ecosystem of knowledge. And that's where we have, you know, the shooter in synagogue in Poway near San Diego uh, talking about Simon of Trent as one of the reasons why he goes and kills Jews in 2019, because his sources of knowledge are the, the neo-Nazi Nazi-inspired or Nazi sources of knowledge. So again, it's it's so important to see how the facts travel and who is disseminating how it works to understand why they stick, right? So if I get some information from someone that uh, a source of knowledge I don't trust, I will check it out, and but I will go to a source of information that I trust, right? I might go to uh, BBC or some other thing before I say, oh, look what happened. But that's the key here. And one of my historical characters said, who do you trust, the church fathers or the rabbis, right? And some will say, I trust the rabbis, and some will say, I trust the church fathers. But the story will be different. What this leads us to is kind of a bigger question. This might even be kind of an ethical question. How do we fight misinformation? I mean, what does the history of the blood libel teach us about the ways in which platforms of authority, even discussing patently false information and saying that it's wrong, lends it authority in and of itself. Uh, and here I'm thinking about the ways in which, you know, I think this is one of the major failings of journalism over the past few years, right? Even discussing a lie that is told by a politician, you know, and saying, oh, this is false, et cetera, et cetera, even giving it the time of day only serves to help to amplify that false message. And I think that this is a major question of thinking about how is it that we treat knowledge? How is it that information and misinformation spreads? If this is really true, that even the fact of talking about something amplifies the message, does that mean that it's basically impossible to fight you know, patently false accusations or false claims? Yeah, well, I won't obviously have a solution to that question, because if I did, somebody smarter than I would have already come up with it. But you know, one of the things that I took away as I was working on it is, A, that leadership matters and what uh, leaders are able to say in public condemning acts of either misinformation or violence or uh, other things matters. It doesn't prevent other things from happening, but it allows people who might be on the border or who might want to push back, it gives them tools to fight. The other thing is, I think, 
you can't suppress knowledge once it's out there. You could burn all the books you want. Somebody is going to publish another one. You can, you know, suppress a website. Somebody will pop it up in another place, right? You can't suppress it in that way. And I think what could be useful, again, it's not a solution, is labeling that this is false information, like, you know, big explicit statements. This is a lie or this is, you know, not true or something. Some people might stop and say, hey, this is maybe something I shouldn't fully trust, right? Those true believers, they will still accept it. But some people who are not, that may say, well, maybe I shouldn't trust what's written here. And that is something that I think is important because you have a lot of people who just hear things and today might hear things and might just go and Google things to find out like, oh, why did Hitler hate Jews? And will be taken, for instance, to a white supremacist website. If this is not a labeled or uh, there's no warning, they will end up on a certain path of knowledge and enter in certain ecosystem of knowledge. But you won't be able to fully suppress it because it, once it's out there, it's out there. It may not be relevant right away, but it becomes a, a reservoir of knowledge that is then used whenever it's useful for somebody. There are so many ways in which this history of how the blood libel became, quote unquote, authoritative to people speaks to, as you said, the transformation of information into quote-unquote facts, or, or rather the transformation of disinformation into quote-unquote facts. You know, I think about uh, Donald Trump, right? And, and he has a particular rhetorical fashion where he will often say, many people are saying such and such. And whether or not they're actually saying it or not, you know, he is taking something that exists and transforming it through his position of political authority and whether people take him seriously or not. And then the news media reports on what he said because it's newsworthy because the president said it in and of itself. Right. And then somebody will say, and it was reported that, and that becomes a fact. Yeah. But I want to bring us back to the blood libel kind of more specifically, which is that I think that one of the really important areas of thinking about the blood libel and how it is unfortunately relevant today, there is obviously the way in which specific blood libel accusations resurface, like as you said, you know, people look back to Nazi texts or or other things and sort of draw upon this and say, oh, this happened because it was written down at some point in the past. But there's also ways in which the blood libel accusation has been transformed in particular ways uh, in recent years. Uh, and here I'm thinking in particular about the bizarre conspiracy theories of, of Q and QAnon. And I was wondering if you maybe want to say something about that which is really clearly a reconfiguration of the historical blood libel accusations. And then we can maybe think as well about how this relates to this broader question of the ecosystem of false information, which you've been talking about. The two aspects that show you this kind of uh, transformation of the trope are obviously kidnapping children and then kidnapping for what purpose, right? So you may no longer have it for blood, <laughs> but you may have it for harvesting organs. And that certainly was one that, that came out a few years ago. And then the kidnapping of children, obviously for sexual abuse of, uh, of children that QAnon is promoting. 
they often do not say anything specifically about Jews, right? But they are using these frameworks that may lead people who encountered this kind of fake stories onto the epistemic trip that will lead them to anti-Semitism because they'll think about kidnapping children, who does it for what, and then you'll end up on the confirmation uh, epistemic loop of blood libel and anti-Semitism. Yes, even though the the QAnon theories don't specifically talk about Jews, right, is the same story, right? The accusation is there are these, you know, quote-unquote bad people out there you know, and then they use the figure of George Soros, who was very clearly a stand in for all Jews just in general. But the idea fundamentally, you know, just so the people can understand it, is that that people are kidnapping children and using their bodies and their organs or oh, sexual pedophilia. Uh, yeah. Sexual abuse. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that it's a transformation of this idea of the use of children that is very clearly a descendant of the blood libel myth. That is exactly right. And what it is, it's using these anti-Semitic frames without mentioning Jews. But then when you start going and doing research to learn more, you'll say, oh, that's who they're talking about, right? Because they'll find references to to Jews manipulating conspiracy, anti-Jewish stories and things like that. And they will end up uh, in an explicitly anti-Semitic epistemic environment. So you're right in the sense that this is using directly or indirectly, usually indirectly, but quite explicitly anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic frames and tropes, but without often mentioning Jews, with the exception of George Soros, the money aspect. And we see it, we see it in the t-shirts, you know, QAnon gatherings and things, uh, followers. You see explicit anti-Semitism and explicit anti-Semitic imagery. Yeah. Part of what's going on here is this question of how do we fight against this kind of like conspiratorial world, as it were. And we see the failings of, you know, the giants of technology, right, you know, to do this. I think in the book, you even, you know, start out by talking about, uh, I mean, this is not QAnon, this, this predates it by a little bit, but the inability of Facebook to get rid of groups that are focused on blood level accusations or Holocaust denial. And I think that one of the key challenges going forward is thinking, like you said, you, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. But the question is, why is it so hard to fight against information, which is so bizarre, so patently false? I think there is a, a little bit of, of a freedom of speech fundamentalism that is affecting that. That is all speech should be out there and should be valid and validated. And that's, I think, one of the key things that everything becomes acceptable. And there is no valiance given to true, thoughtful analysis versus uh, QAnon and conspiracies or anything like that. You know, Jewish History Matters website has the same valiance as some kind of a, a QAnon website, right? Labeling is important, I think, in that way that, I mean, we as scholars are not immune to it, but we have this peer review as some kind of way of imprimatur, right? Of saying, well, this has been at least checked. It's not perfect, but at least we tried. And the failure of that is that, yeah, you have this, uh, you know, Facebook page devoted to ritual murder and they keep it because they feel that if they don't, it's infringement of freedom of speech. 
I think that's a problem. We're not even talking about knowledge. This is false stuff. How do we validate that something is actually reliable, even if you disagree with it within reason, versus something that is totally made up uh, and it's out there that you know becomes treated as a fact? Because it's on those sites, it becomes a fact. I mean, I, th- I think about like archive.org, you know, archive.org uh, is a huge resource. I use it constantly to find older versions of websites. If you're looking up something that, that isn't there anymore, because of course, theoretically, you put it on the internet and it's there forever, but things are disappearing all the time. But fundamentally, archive.org is a site for anti-Semitic videos, right? If, if you search through, you can find people can upload anything they want there. And because it's there, it lends epistemic value. You know, at least to people who don't really recognize that what they're looking at is false, uh, but they think because it's on that website, it must have truth or value to it. You know, the same way, you know, because somebody posts something to Facebook, you know, even though everybody recognizes that Facebook is an echo chamber, people will still engage with it. People will still take it seriously. YouTube, you know, because somebody posts it on YouTube, or even if you're looking at a respectable video on YouTube, on the right hand side, they're going to have related items. Yes. And I, somebody did a study at some point about like, you know, if you keep clicking on, on the related items, you will eventually make your way to a conspiracy theory. Fundamentally, I think part of what you're pointing out here, which is really, really fascinating and really troubling is, is the way in which these new communications technologies, and this is not a new thing, um, you know, th- these new communications technologies lend themselves, whether willingly or unwillingly, to the spread of false information. And you're pointing out this is not new. You're saying this actually goes back to the printing press. And people think, oh, printing press was really great. This is fantastic. But you're actually saying that the printing press itself also had this dark side to it as well. And printing press and newspapers, when they emerged as a mass media to, you know, anybody could start a newspaper who had money and they could print whatever they wanted to print. And then you would start reading only within the, you know, the newspapers you wanted to read. So it's not a new story. The speed and technology. And I think the one thing that that is different now is that let's say you are living in the late 19th, early 20th century France in the middle of the Dreyfus affair in which Captain Dreyfus is accused of espionage against France and you are looking at a newsstand. You will see fiercely anti-Semitic newspapers right next to pro-Dreyfus newspapers. So you might buy one or the other because that's you will be associating yourself with a certain group, but you will see next to each other at least two points of view. What is happening today is that once you enter the algorithm, you're only going to stay within the algorithm. It's not like when you are starting to click on those anti-Semitic QAnon type of websites that Google will or Facebook will take you suddenly to some you know, reliable academic sites to try to, you know, decontaminate your beliefs. And that is, I think, what is far more dangerous, that you are no longer exposed to alternative points of view. Thinking a little bit more about the role of history you know, in this struggle over information, which is to say that I think that it is really too bad that when you look at the reporting, for instance, on QAnon, people aren't making this connection between you know, the conspiratorial thinking of this most recent generation of conspiracy theories 
and anti-Semitism. I know that you've, I think, been on NPR to talk about this a little bit. So obviously some people are bringing in historians and experts to really think through these issues. But how is it the historical perspective can help people to understand some of these issues in ways that people aren't thinking about enough? Yeah, I think we can help in not just providing context of why certain things happen, but also explaining how those things happen, right? And what I keep saying, how do we know that these things happen? What do we know about it and how? And I think that's the the key issue in terms of understanding. It's not just to say that QAnon is anti-Semitic, but how and why. How do they radicalize, right? What's the mechanism of that? And to understand that, you you need to understand how they consume knowledge and what are their sources of knowledge. Uh, I had an educating moment during the Ariel Toaf affair uh, over his book on the Simon of Trent, uh, which became a huge, huge affair in 2007. And there were a lot of historians who spoke against it and how he was wrong and things like that. But then the anti-Semites actually took out of context quotes and they used it to say that Kenneth Stowe said that X, Y, and Z. Uh, and it made me very careful as a historian to write in such a way. I tried, and sometimes quite kludgy, I would say, you know, it is said to have been, or it seems to have been. I, I add this like wordy way of saying it because I was aware that people can take out of context and say, Jews killed Simon of Trent says Magda Terer, rather than, you know, so my, I would say Jews were said to have killed or Jews were accused of having killed. I will use that lengthy language. And sometimes we don't do that enough and people are able to quote or take it or not realize that what we're saying is we're actually paraphrasing a historical source and think that we as historians with authority are repeating these things. So one thing I think we as historians have to be aware of how we are using some of those, some of the language that in which we are writing and how we are writing. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what you're getting at here is that we need to understand that our own arguments can be used against us in a certain way. But I'm thinking more about just what is the utility of history for thinking through these issues? And I think that we and the listeners to the podcast, I think, understand this you know, on a certain kind of basic level. But the question is, why is it that history matters for us to understand QAnon, I guess, you know, or to understand, you know, the resurgence of Holocaust denial, you know, et cetera? I think history, for once, if you have historians, people will not make facile comparisons to other, but they will have thoughtful analysis of what might be useful lessons from history and what may not be. And, and again, understanding the how and why may prevent this kind of 280-character comparison and historical analysis. We can understand better why certain things exist if we understand how they got into this, again, this ecosystem of sources of knowledge, uh, the forensic history helps us also sort of tackle some of the problems on the basic level. So you need to understand the, the historical how as much as the historical why. Thank you so much for this fascinating conversation, this really important set of issues. Thank you so much for, for having me. Uh, I do think that you're right, history matters. 
And thanks to you for listening to this episode with Magda Tater. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.